the views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. TMI with Aldous Tyler for Friday, April 2nd, 2021. That's right. Not April Fool's Day. We will suffer no April Fool's here. <laughs> no, but um, indeed, there is a group of people out there who are sick and tired of being treated like fools, April or otherwise, um, by the very people they depend on to... Uh, Give them what they need to live. We are talking about the workers for Amazon. Jeff Bezos, oh, he's doing just fine. He is one of, if not the richest man in the world, uh, depending upon the day. Uh, him and Elon and a few others seem to constantly be battling it out for the top spot, um, as if that matters to anybody but them. Um, but no, the the workers for Amazon are uh, absolutely, um, they're done with being treated like crap. Um, they've filed charges with the National Labor Relations Board accusing Amazon of interfering with workers' rights to organize, and, um, and those charges more than tripled during the pandemic. Um, as reported on a story called Fired, Interrogated, Disciplined, Amazon Warehouse Organizers Allege Year of Retaliation, on uh, March 30th by Olivia Salon and April Glazer. Um, they say, the day after Jonathan Bailey organized a walkout over COVID-19 concerns at an Amazon warehouse in Queens, New York, he was, he said, detained during his lunch break by a manager in a black camouflage vest who introduced himself as XFBI. Bailey, who co-founded Amazonians United, a network of Amazon workers fighting for better pay and working conditions, was ushered to a side office and interrogated for 90 minutes, according to testimony filed to the National Labor Relations Board. Now, the manager asked exactly what Bailey had said or done to get his fellow workers to join the walkout. When Bailey declined to explain, the manager shifted his tone. He told Bailey that some people felt hurt by what he did and that it might be seen as harassment, Bailey said. Bailey continued to explain, it was already a pretty intense conversation, but it became very clear 
They were trying to intimidate me. Being accused of harassment is a very dangerous thing. A week later, Bailey received a formal write-up for harassment, although his managers would not tell him whom he had allegedly harassed, nor what he had allegedly said or done, according to his National Labor Relations Board testimony. Now, Bailey, who still works for Amazon, believes that was part of a corporate strategy to silence organizers. And in May 2020, he filed a charge against Amazon to the National Labor Relations Board, alleging that the company had violated labor law by retaliating against him for protected, concerted activities. The board found merit to the allegations and filed a federal complaint against Amazon. This month, a year after Bailey staged the walkout, Amazon settled. Under the terms of the settlement, Amazon was required to post a notice to employees on physical bulletin boards and via email, reminding them of their right to organize. Bailey said, Amazon will work to destroy your character and try to keep you from talking about what's actually going on. And it's also that Jeff Bezos can make more dollars. Bailey's complaint is one of at least 37 charges filed to the National Labor Relations Board against Amazon, uh, America's second largest employer, by the way, across 20 cities since February 2020, when news of the pandemic began to spread. These complaints accuse the company of interfering with workers' rights to organize or form a union. That's more than triple the number of cases of this kind filed to the agency about Amazon in 2019 and six times the number filed in 2018. Which is to say, Amazon's not being, uh, getting any better about this, just worse. Now, for comparison, Walmart, America's largest employer, so yeah, let's put this in perspective, Walmart is America's largest employer of American people, Amazon, second largest. So, for comparison, Walmart, which is the America's largest, has had eight such charges since February 2020, versus 30-some. Uh, the meat processing giant JBS, whose workers have been fighting for better working conditions throughout the pandemic, including staging protests, had nine of these charges. Again, not 37. The number of similar charges filed against Amazon over the last year has become significant enough that the National Labor Relations Board is considering whether the meritous allegations warrant a consolidated effort between the regions. Now, National Labor Relations Board spokesman Nelson Kakaro said, typically NLRB, National Labor Relations Board charges are investigated by one of 26 regional offices, but in rare instances, the board combines cases into a consolidated complaint, as it has done with Walmart and McDonald's in the past, if it believes there's a pattern emerging at a company. Amazon has declined to comment on the increase in National Labor Relations Board charges. Labor experts said that the surge in such charges reflects a dramatic increase in organizing among a small but vocal portion of Amazon's 500,000 warehouse workers across North America during a coronavirus-led boom in online retail, leading to record sales and an almost 200% increase in profits for Amazon. Workers have been coming together to demand better working conditions, including through solidarity campaigns, strikes, protests, walkouts at warehouses across the United States, including in Chicago, New York, 
Minneapolis, Iowa City, Iowa, Sacramento, and the Inland Empire of California, also Salem, Oregon, and King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. As worker activism gains momentum, so too as Amazon's effort to counter it with anti-union propaganda, firing key organizers, surveilling employees, and hiring Pinkertons to gather intelligence on warehouse workers. Now, with interviews of more than two dozen Amazon warehouse workers, nine of whom said they'd been fired, disciplined, or retaliated against for protected activity, three of whom filed National Labor Relations Board complaints since the pandemic began, they allege that Amazon has in some cases selectively enforced its policies on issues such as social distancing, vulgar language, and insubordination to target those speaking up for worker rights. So in other words, if you're an Amazon employee and you're making a fuss about the fact that, you know what, we don't deserve to be treated like this by Amazon. Amazon will go ahead and say, um, gee, you know what, we're going to give you a write-up here, a formal formal disciplinary action, because you're not practicing uh, social distancing well enough. Yeah, you're not social distancing well enough. Wow. Or, even better, well, we've noticed you've been using some vulgar language. We're going to write you up for that. Or, of course, then there's the the old classic, insubordination. You are not following what your managers and your uh, foremen are telling you to do. Probably because the managers and foremen are telling them they can't be talking about about this stuff to people. A handful of workers, including Bailey, said that allegations made against them by Amazon seemingly play into racist stereotypes of black men being angry or aggressive. Now, an Amazon spokeswoman, uh, Leah Say, said, We have a zero tolerance for racism or retaliation of any kind, and in many cases, these complaints come from individuals who acted inappropriately toward coworkers and were terminated as a result. We work hard to make sure our teams feel supported and will always stand by our decision to take action if someone makes their colleagues feel threatened or excluded. (laughs) Labor historians note, just how significant this fight is for the future of employees at one of the world's fastest growing companies. John Logan, director of labor and employment studies at San Francisco State University, said, There is a David versus Goliath aspect to this. Workers getting paid $15 per hour are going up against one of the world's most powerful corporations owned by the world's richest man. Having a union would be a disaster for Amazon, so it's pulling out all the stops to prevent workers from organizing. Now, the highest profile organizing campaign is in Bessemer, Alabama. That's the one you've probably heard about, where over 5,000 workers are in the midst of a precedent-setting vote to form a union. There, Amazon is waging what labor experts like Logan describe as a classic and well-funded union-busting campaign. Workers described how Amazon required them to attend mandatory meetings to hear why the union was not, in Amazon's view, beneficial for workers. Oh no, it's terrible. The warehouse is filled with banners and signs encouraging workers to vote against the union. And the company set up a website and hashtag, do it without dues, to warn them about union fees. This is classic, by the way. Um, When 
big companies or any company doesn't want you and your fellow workers to join a union, they say, oh, but you know, you already take uh, get enough taken out of your pay with taxes and you have to pay enough already for your benefits. Now you're also going to have to pay union dues. <laughs> they, of course, decline to mention that you will be paid well more than you're being paid any other way because the union will make sure of it. Plus, your benefits won't cost as much. And uh, yeah, <laughs> that's, they don't want to tell you that. Daryl Richardson, an Amazon employee in Bessemer who's organizing the union drive, said, well, they're doing everything they can to try to convince the people to vote no. There are signs right over the men's stall, so when you use the bathroom, it's right there, face to face. Now, Shay, the Amazon spokeswoman, said that it was important for employees to understand the facts of joining a union. Hmm. Amazon's anti-union campaign states that union members would have to pay $500 a year in dues with no guarantee of better pay. Economic research indicates that collective bargaining unions generally raise pay for both union and non-union members. Michael Pachter, an analyst at Woodbush Securities, a Los Angeles-based investment firm, uh, said, Amazon fears the union because of the leverage it can have to organize strikes that could cripple the business. He notes that Amazon's efficient customer service is critical to the company's success. If unions negotiate better pay and benefits, it would increase Amazon's operating expenses and reduce profit, Pachter said. Shea, the spokeswoman, said Amazon hosts regular information sessions for all employees, which include an opportunity for employees to ask questions. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. I guarantee you Amazon hosts these regular information sessions, which include the opportunity for employees to stand out to management as rabble-rousers and trouble by saying, Hey, I've got questions about this. <laughs> Shea adds, if the union vote passes, it will impact everyone at the site, and it's important all associates understand what that means for them and their day-to-day -day life working at Amazon. The company offers, by the way, a $15 an hour starting wage, benefits, and a clean working environment for its employees, according to a spokesperson. Elsewhere, the company's crackdown on organizing has been more insidious, say workers and labor experts. Courtney Bowden, who was fired from her warehouse job in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania last March after advocating for sick pay for part-time workers, said, They made up stupid reasons to get rid of each of us. According to her complaint filed to the National Labor Relations Board, management at her warehouse targeted her by selectively and disparately enforcing rules around how workers should wear their hair and later fired her for an altercation with a co-worker. In November, the National Labor Relations Board determined that, following an investigation, it found merit to the allegations that Amazon had illegally retaliated against Bowen. Bowden, I should say according to public records first attained by BuzzFeed. A hearing before a National Labor Relations Board judge is scheduled for later this year. Bowden said, If what they set out to do is shut down organizing, I think they're doing a good job right now. But when you take out some people, there will always be someone else later down the line. John Hopkins, 
not of the Johns Hopkins, <laughs> John Hopkins, an organizer who worked at a warehouse in San Leandro, California, agreed. Amazon suspended Hopkins for three months, starting in early May 2020, for violating a relatively new social distancing rule forbidding workers to stay on site for longer than 15 minutes after their shift ended. In the months before his suspension, Hopkins had been distributing pamphlets about union organizing to co-workers after becoming concerned about the company's handling of the pandemic. Hopkins, who was 34, was worried about the risk of exposure to the virus at work, particularly since he lives with his stepfather and brother, both of which are cancer survivors. The pamphlets he'd been leaving kept disappearing from the break room and notice boards, and nobody in human resources would explain why, according to Hopkins. On May 1st, he filed a complaint with the National Labor Relations Board against Amazon, noting that other flyers, such as job postings for third-party delivery companies, were left right where they were. That night, he clocked out in solidarity with a sick-out protest held by essential workers in the United States, but stayed in the break room to talk to co-workers about organizing. Management asked him to leave, which he did, after arguing it was protected activity. He was then suspended for three months on the next day. Hopkins said, It seemed like a very disproportionate punishment. I felt like they isolated me so I couldn't get other workers rallied by my side. But they pretended they didn't see the connection between my union organizing and my suspension. While the National Labor Relations Board initially dismissed Hopkins' case, it is revisiting it as part of the agency's larger investigation into Amazon's alleged retaliation. Now, labor experts say that Amazon warehouses are also designed to detect and squash organizing through surveillance technology, including the scanners workers use to track the rate at which they sort and pack items, mandatory daily worker surveys, and artificial intelligence-powered camera systems to detect social distancing violations. Vina Dubal, a law professor at the University of California, Hastings, whose research focuses on law, technology, and gig work, says, Amazon controls workers' bodies and movement in such minute ways, ostensibly to track productivity, that people cannot have any purpose in the workplace except to produce. It's inherently union-busting. She noted that surveillance and intense pressure on workers to meet productivity targets make it easy to pin a termination on one of the thousands of rules work that workers have to abide by. Amazon spokeswoman Shay said that scanners were for tracking inventory, not people, and that data collected from the mandatory surveys are used to make improvements to employees' work experience. Senior warehouse staff are also trained to inform higher-ups if they hear workers discussing organizing, said Anisha Yurchak, a former on-site medical representative at a fulfillment center in Salem, Oregon. She said, I remember one of my supervisors came up to me and said, if you ever hear the word union, please let us know right away. I asked what was going to happen to them, and he said, don't quote me on this, but they're going to get fired. Amazon denied that senior staff were trained to keep an eye out for organizers. Shea said, We respect our employees' right to join, form, or not join a labor union or other lawful organization of their own selection without fear of retaliation, intimidation, or harassment. Now, I want you to guess how often she's rehearsed that line, as that's legally what she must 
say. And I would like you to guess exactly how much she would say that if it wasn't legally necessary. Now, Yurchak, whose job was to provide first aid to injured warehouse workers, sued Amazon last May after she was terminated for insubordination. In her complaint, she alleged that she had repeatedly raised concerns about workplace safety violations related to the pandemic, including a lack of personal protective equipment and deep cleaning of the facility, as well as feeling pressured to return to work while she was on medical leave. In court filings, Amazon said your check was fired after refusing to sanitize worker harnesses. <laughs> oh, my. Again, they can say whatever they want, and um, it's up to an investigation to prove whether or not you are the villain or they are. The apparent pattern of firing, suspending, or disciplining organizers has played out nationwide. Chris Smalls, who worked at a warehouse in Staten Island, New York, organized a walkout on March 30th, 2020, to protest the lack of COVID-19 protections for warehouse workers. He and other workers, including Gerald Bryson and Derek Palmer, held signs outside the building with messages such as, Treat your workers like your customers, and Alexa, send us home. Amazon fired or disciplined all three of those folks in the following weeks. Amazon said it fired Smalls on the day of the protest for violating a 14-day quarantine after coming into contact with an employee who tested positive for COVID-19. Smalls said lots of other workers were in contact with the same employee for longer time periods, but he was sing singled out for asking management to sanitize the warehouse and be more transparent about positive COVID cases. See, that's the thing. When management is well aware that there's plenty of people violating a rule and you're the one saying, hey, you could be doing a lot better for this COVID-19 stuff. Well, guess who they fire? Yeah, you, because you're the one causing trouble. A week later, on Monday, Amazon 6, Palmer, Bryson and the recently fired Smalls attended a second protest outside the facility. Bryson, who joined the protest on his day off, was fired two weeks later for violating Amazon's vulgar language policy after a two-minute interaction with another employee who disagreed with the protest. According to a statement submitted to the NLRB, reviewed by NBC News, the woman repeatedly told him to get the F out of here and told him in racially charged language to go back to where you came from, go back to the Bronx. Bryson initially responded by telling the woman he was protesting for her too, but according to the filing with the National Labor Relations Board, her insults escalated and uh, he wound up referring to her as a uh, bitch before walking away. Bryson said, I'm a renegade, a rebel. If you stomp on my foot, I will let you know and expect an apology, but I've never been aggressive to a male or female. Like Jonathan Bailey from the Queen's Warehouse, Bryson believes his race played a part in his firing. Both men are black. He said, the person they backed made racial comments towards me, but that person kept their job and I was fired while protesting on my day off. Shea of Amazon, of course, says the company has zero tolerance for racism or retaliation of any kind. In June 2020, Bryson filed an unfair labor practice charge with the National Labor Relations Board, alleging that Amazon illegally retaliated against him for organizing. The National Labor Relations Board investigated and determined in December that the complaint had merit, 
Bryson is awaiting a hearing before a National Labor Relations Board judge. An Amazon spokesperson said that Bryson was witnessed by other employees bullying and intimidating a female associate, and that the company looked forward to sharing the facts in this case. Palmer, who helped organize both protests, also faced disciplinary action for violating Amazon's social distancing rules. On April 10th of 2020, the same day Bryson was suspended, he says he was given a quote-unquote final write-up, typically reserved for a third-time rule violation, without receiving any previous write-ups. He said, they were attempting to find any little thing they could to get uh, to fire me. But they found out I had an attorney and fell back from that because they got a lot of scrutiny for firing Chris. In February, New York Attorney General Letitia James sued Amazon for failing to protect workers at warehouses in Staten Island and Queens and accused the company of illegally retaliating against workers who complained. Amazon spokesperson Kelly Nantel said the Attorney General's filing did not present an accurate picture of Amazon's industry-leading response to the pandemic. So yes, in other words, oh my gosh, we, we lead the industry in how we're responding. Brett Daniels, 28, who was let go in January from his job at Amazon's warehouse in Chandler, Arizona, said that managers would hush him when speaking about workplace issues and organizing. He described coming back from a November 2020 protest in Seattle organized by the Congress of Essential Workers, a worker advocacy group uh, created in, uh, by Chris Smalls after he was fired. He said he was approached by a manager he'd never spoken to before. Manager said, Brett, right? And told me I'd been pinged on the cameras for breaking social distancing rules because someone else had entered my bubble. I think they were letting me know they were watching me, basically. The firings triggered a wave of solidarity from some of Amazon's corporate employees, including user experience designers Emily Cunningham and Marin Costa, who publicly advocated for warehouse workers via their Twitter accounts. Cunningham and Costa were both fired last April 13th for what Amazon described to the Washington Post as repeated violations of internal policies. Two weeks later, Tim Bray, a vice president at Amazon Web Services, resigned, writing in a blog post that the justification Amazon gave for firing Cunningham and Costa was laughable. Bray said in an interview, The COVID pandemic has cast a very harsh light on the stark inequality of power and wealth that are a feature of 21st century capitalism. With COVID, the penalty for the working class might be death. You had to go to the warehouse while white-collar workers stayed at home. It's not terribly surprising that labor sentiments have been strengthened over the last year. Well, this week, all eyes are in Bessemer, Alabama, where union ballots are being counted. Christy Hoffman, a general secretary of UNI Global Union, which has created a worldwide alliance of unions organizing Amazon workers in 22 countries, said, It's been a great shot in the arm for workers around the world who want to organize not only at Amazon, but at other industries. If they can win in Alabama, well, we can do it anywhere, she said to the workers. If they don't win, it doesn't mean it's over. It means there's more work to do. You've been listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On 
WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. You like it? I think he likes it. What's the more? Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
We're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. After the extraordinary events of the past five months, American democracy may be under stress like never before in the modern era. So writes Peter Greer, staff writer at csmonitor.com this week. He says, the great machine of governance established by the Constitution in 1788 has long been beset by underlying problems like partisanship, gridlock, disinformation. But then in November 2020 here, an incumbent president threw a match on this tinder, a false claim that the election was stolen and that despite certified counts electing his opponent, that he, in fact, had won. This lie has since rooted itself in part of the nation's body politic, drawing support from hundreds of elected Republican officials. A mob smashed into the U.S. Capitol on January 6th to stop the purported steal. Former President Donald Trump's evidence-free assertion about the election was a dangerous seed that can no longer be unplanted a little over a third of U.S. voters and three quarters of Republicans say they don't think President Joe Biden won legitimately, at least according to one recent poll. That false belief endures despite more than 60 court cases heard by more than 90 judges, including Trump appointees. And despite Trump administration officials, including the attorney general and top cybersecurity officials saying the elections were secure and there was no credible evidence of widespread fraud. One of the most vocal boosters of the lie, lawyer Sidney Powell, is defending herself against a billion dollar libel lawsuits saying no reasonable person would believe her wild accusations and outlandish claims. That's her defense. Meanwhile, in the election's aftermath, the parties are embracing very different ideas about which direction democracy should take. Republicans are all in on enacting new voting restrictions. Senator Ted Cruz of Texas recently told a group of GOP state lawmakers just that. If Democrats succeed in pushing through far-reaching election legislation currently before the Senate, Republicans won't win elections for a generation, according to Senator Ted Cruz. Now, Democrats increasingly believe that the nation's governance structure is tilted against them and that they do not win seats commensurate with their numbers due to the Electoral College and other factors. They're pushing for new states and other major changes to flip what they perceive as a structural imbalance. President Biden said in his inaugural address, America is now enmeshed in an uncivil war that pits red against blue, rural versus urban, conservative versus liberal. Most voters agree with that assessment. According to polls, only 16% believe democracy is thriving in the United States, according to a survey from the Associated Press and uh, NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. Some 45% think U.S. democracy isn't functioning properly. So where do we go from here? Well, one piece of good news is that democracy's troubles have sparked a sharp increase in thinking and writing about how Americans might bolster their 233-year democratic experiment. To be clear, the nation is 233 years old and was always 
at its outset considered a wild experiment in trying to have the democratically represented republic uh, and see how it would succeed. So, thanks to all of the uncertainty, we're examining it far more than we used to. Many experts think that patching cracks is only part of the solution. Another part might be building democracy in the first place, addressing the inequalities of representation and participation that have blighted the nation since its founding. Also needed would be getting elected officials to face and try and fix the nation's real social and economic problems. William Howell, a professor in American politics at the University of Chicago, says, The work of rejuvenating and restoring our democracy is going to have to focus on all levels of government. This is an all-hands-on-deck affair. White supremacists powered the mob. They were angry about the demise of the world as they had known it, including a loss of political power they felt rightfully theirs. Their leaders called on them to take it back, so they planned something. I could only be called a coup d'etat and attacked a citadel of their opponents. But I'm not talking about what just happened on January 6th, 2021. No, no. This happened in 1898, and the place was Wilmington, North Carolina. But the similarities between this 19th century insurrection, in which a mob of white men overthrew an elected biracial government in Wilmington, and the January 6th insurrection in Washington, D.C., in which a mob stormed the U.S. Capitol to stop the counting of electoral college votes, that similarities are inescapable. Suzanne Metzler, professor of American institutions at Cornell University, kept thinking while watching the scenes of the Capitol riot that there are so many parallels. The most obvious similarity is the refusal to accept an election. President Trump's unwillingness to acknowledge that he lost the 2020 presidential vote and his months-long effort to overturn the results were among the most abnormal and important events of the Trump presidency. This denial was clearly anti-democratic. According to a pithy definition from New York University political science Adam Porowski, democracy is a system in which parties lose elections. Another similarity between the events of 1898 and 2021 is the extensive planning involved in operations. While some organization took place at the grassroots, it was political leaders in both cases who rallied and aimed the crowds at their destination. At least a dozen Capitol rioters facing federal charges have said they stormed the building because their president told them to. Now, race was also a driving factor in both events. It was more central to Wilmington, but white supremacist symbols, signs, and supporters were definitely present and accounted for amongst the Washington Capitol rioters rioters as well. Now, the Wilmington riot figures largely in the book published last year by Professor Mettler and co-author Robert Lieberman of John Hopkins University called Four Threats, The Recurring Crises of American Democracy. It was a major example of the backsliding from racial progress that occurred throughout the post-Civil War South. The pre-war white aristocracy of Wilmington, largely Southern Democrats, had seized while black Republicans and white populists wrote, rose, I should say, to elected power in the decades after 1865. In 1898, they acted, enlisting white militia groups to help retake the city. 
On November 10th, armed white people rampaged through the black neighborhoods, killing hundreds. The building of the black-owned Daily Record newspaper was burned to the ground, and the police chief and other officials were driven out of town at gunpoint. President William McKinley declined to intervene in the coup. In coming months, the insurrectionists changed state voting laws, making access to the ballot subject to new restrictions like literacy tests and poll taxes. Professor Mettler said that means the Democrats became the dominant party with very little competition. And again, let's be very clear. Late uh, 19th century, what it meant to be a Democrat, especially in the South, meant that you were a white supremacist. Democracy was under siege, as it had been at crucial times throughout American history. In the Four Threats book, Professor Mettler and her co-author look at five crises, the 1790s and its ferocious conflict between the Federalists of President John Adams and the Republicans of Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe, the 1850s and the run-up to the Civil War, the 1890s and the end of Reconstruction, the 1930s and the rise of an imperial presidency amid economic crisis, and the 1970s and the maturation of weaponized presidential power amid Watergate. After analyzing the events of these periods, four distinct types of disruption emerge, says Professor Mettler. These are the book's four threats, which separately or in concert are inimical to the building of democracy. The first is political polarization. In Adams' time, Federalists and Republicans so disliked one another that they often lived in different neighborhoods and attended different churches. Second is the question of who is a full member of society, which touches directly on the racism and nativism that have stained American history. Third is economic inequality, which has weakened belief in democracy from the Gilded Age to today. And fourth is growing executive power, which strains the Constitution itself. Sometimes, it takes only one of these factors to threaten American democracy, according to Professors Mettler and Lieberman. Sometimes, a number of them combine to deepen a crisis, as they did in the 1850s and 1890s. But now, they are all present, right now, 2021, in the country to one degree or another. Professor Mettler says, we've never had all four threats together at the same time. It says to me, democracy is really endangered now. The United States is currently in the midst of one of the most competitive eras in the nation's political history. The 2020 presidential election was the ninth in a row in which the popular vote margin was less than 10 percentage points, a record that we've had that many like that. Neither party received a vote of confidence from the American people in last November's vote. Democrat Joe Biden won the presidency, but Democrats did worse than expected in House races. The Senate is split 50-50 with control determined by Vice President uh, Kamala Harris's vote alone. This outcome is unsurprising given that neither the Republican nor Democratic Party has surpassed a 50% approval rating in the United States since 2009. Francis Lee, a professor of politics and public affairs at Princeton University, wrote in an after-election analysis, Whatever the shortcomings of our representational institutions, they accurately reflect a country that remains divided down the middle between the two parties. In this context, politics itself on the national level has become 
become hyper-competitive, as both sides have every incentive to fight for every ballot. Both sides see the basic rules of democracy as their key to future victory, tweeted New America senior fellow Lee Drutman earlier this month. But the two parties are taking very different approaches to the current focus of their struggle over rules, voting rights. Democrats are pushing a mammoth catch-all bill at the national level that would mandate automatic registration, expand early and mail-in voting, establish a public financing option for congressional campaigns, and establish ethics rules for Supreme Court justices, among other things. Republicans are generally working at the state level in state level instead of federal in legislatures where they have the power to enact voting restrictions. In Georgia, the GOP has already passed a bill that tightens voter ID requirements for absentee ballots, limits drop boxes, and most importantly, shifts some electoral oversight powers to the state legislature. I should say. GOP lawmakers are pushing similarly restrictive bills in at least 43 states. As justification, many state Republicans cite uncertainties about the 2020 election, driven by the false accusations about fraud made by Mr. Trump and his allies. Both sides in this struggle may be trying to gain an advantage over the other, but one side's been far more aggressive and even anti-democratic in its tactics, the Republicans. Much of this is rooted in Mr. Trump's continued grip on the party and his few holds barred effort to flip the election results. For instance, Brad Raffensperger, I should say, the Georgia Secretary of State, who refused to accede to Mr. Trump's attempt to alter the state's vote count, is the target of Trump-led revenge efforts to block his re-election. The Georgia voting bill has already stripped his position of some of its powers. But Republican hardball tactics are more than an expression of Mr. Trump's singular personality. They're also a result of the party's transition into an outlet for America's rising nativist emotions. The GOP is increasingly the party of those who feel Black Lives Matter, of the Me Too movement, uh, a perceived cancel culture and other sweeping social and cultural changes are turning America into a country they don't recognize. Issues, policy proposals, budgets, and other mundane aspects of government aren't what it's about. Unfortunately, experts such as Professor Howell, co-author of President's Populism and the Crisis of Democracy, along with Terry Moen of Stanford University, like to blame this on populism without understanding what populism actually is. They believe populism is a posture of opposition, that it expresses itself by sowing divisions, fomenting anger, and destroying democratic norms and procedures. Again, that's nativism, but they like to use the term populism because that's the incorrect definition of populism that was begun in the 50s. In fact, they go ahead and say that populism is a political identity whose adherents believe they represent the real people of a nation. This identity is often channeled through a charismatic strongman powering their political fortunes, but if they really stopped and understood political definitions, they realize that's nativism. That's the Nietzsche Scotsman concept. The idea that there is a true native idea of a, of a culture that has to be propelled. So this nativism in America long predates Donald Trump. 
It's prevalent in now many European countries. It thrives amid government failures, the inability to address unauthorized immigration, globalization, automation, and other problems of the modern age. Nativism is the response. Often, unfortunately, populism is blamed. But former President Trump is a classic nativist leader. His basic message is that everything is broken, illegitimate, or rigged. In that context, supporters see his pushback on election results as a kind of valor, a good fight against a system that's otherwise stacked against them. When that sensibility takes hold in a public, it is not coincidental that the attractiveness of democracy dwindles. So how do you counter this trend? Well, it's simply defined... Make government work again. Address the process and procedure problems that have made Washington hardened. A big part of the reason nativism has taken hold in North American politics is our government has failed to solve problems our public wants to see solved. Admittedly, that's a steep mountain. Congress seems incapable of working on more than one thing at a time. Partisanship blocks almost all solutions. Those that pass are ungainly beasts loaded with carve-outs and compromises and extraneous provisions that dilute their ability to address the original purpose. However, the solution that Professors Howell and Moe bring up seems counterintuitive to dial up presidential power. Presidential administrations generally are energetic, unified, and more action-oriented than the legislature. The trick is keeping them in check. Professor Howell says, Our argument is, how do we think about leveraging the problem of presidential leadership while keeping in mind the effect that demagogues can pose to American democracy? Specifically, presidents should be given universal fast-track authority, he argues. That means the nation's chief executive should be able to introduce bills on any subject, and Congress would be required to vote them up or down without any modifications within a set time and without filibusters. Now, this general approach already applies with trade agreements. On the restraint side of the ledger, the Department of Justice and intelligence agencies should be insulated from direct presidential control. Again, Howell and Moe are are saying, perhaps through the use of bipartisan appointed boards, such as the Federal Reserve Board, which oversees monetary policy. President Trump's attempts to meddle with the prosecutorial and intelligence decisions at the Department of Justice show the danger of leaving these powerful agencies under one man's control. The writers would also like to restrict the number of presidential appointees in departments and agencies. This could protect against overall politicization of the executive branch. But perhaps the problem shadowing American democracy is not the unworkability of government per se, but a clash within the executive branch, one at the center of so many Trump presidency uproars, the deep state versus the Oval Office. On one side was a bureaucracy and permanent government, deep in expertise and personnel, pursuing its own interests and derided by Mr. Trump as a secretive cabal working to undermine him. On the other was a chief executive who embraced the all-powerful image of the unitary executive theory held by former Attorney General William Barr and other conservatives. Said President Trump at a press conference last year, when somebody's president of the United States, the authority is total. 
During Mr. Trump's term in office, the United States discovered that much of the insulation protecting this deep state was based on norms, not laws or some more formal protections of deference. In addition to the Department of Justice seeking to act as the president's personal attorney, in a case where alleged sexual assault occurred before he was in office, other examples of that norm-busting included firing bureaucrats for testifying before Congress and berating health officials during a pandemic. Combined with his attacks on congressional powers and prerogatives, this exposed gaping holes in American governance. Stephen Skrowanek, a political scientist at Yale University and co-author of Phantoms of a Beleaguered Republic, The Deep State, and the unitary executive, uh, wrote, this really is where Trump upended the apple cart. To fix the problems exposed in the last four years, Congress should find creative ways to induce the executive branch to join it in cooperative methods of day-to-day governance. Now, this could take the form of bolstering the independence of inspectors general, creating new executive branch offices, establishing independent boards, and commissions, and so forth. Congress could do a lot of different things, he says. Now, the day after delegates officially signed the Constitution and adjourned in 1787, an inquisitive woman asked Benjamin Franklin whether the new nation would be a monarchy or a republic. Franklin famously replied, a republic, if you can keep it. This answer gets at one of the essential points about the nature of U.S. governance. Democracy is a muscle. It needs exercise to remain strong and cooperation among citizens and civic institutions to back it up when threatened. The good news in America is that as democracy has been stressed in recent years, the courts, the media, and brave individuals have proved resilient enough to stand up and protect it. Democratic culture in the country runs deep, perhaps deeper than in other places where it has begun to wobble in recent years. But the hard truth is that U.S. democracy has long been a work in progress, slowly accepting excluded groups like women, black people, sometimes rolling back gains already made, producing authoritarian areas little influenced by democratic ideals. The passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 put the U.S. on the path to becoming a full democracy, but there's still progress to be made. Protecting democracy may involve building it in the first place as well. Professor Mettler said, the most important thing is to try to strengthen the pillars of democracy. The rule of law, strong election administration, protected voting rights, those things are most crucial. You've been listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler, and... um, I just want to remind you that all this information is out there. I'm coming up with nothing but my own viewpoints on these things, but this information that you can find and you can see if you look, but sometimes it's hard, right? It's hard to know how to see reality for how it is. My advice has always been the same. First, you close your eyes, breathe deep, let all that stress slough away, let go of the just loads of information, the too much information that gets thrown at you every day. Find a center within yourself. Remember what matters to you. And once you have that as a basis and you want to see the world for how it truly is, all you will have to do 
is simply open.